Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Hi, everyone. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. It is absolutely vital for survivors in our communities to have the right to bodily autonomy respected and honored and upheld by the law and the Constitution. As we continue to move forward to work to dismantle rape culture and violence in our communities, it is absolutely vital that we support and reinforce and strengthen any protections that we have for bodily autonomy in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor. Today, we have a really cool interview that I'm sharing with Kim Mecklenburg. It's a really awesome episode where she shares some of her history and her trauma. She is also retired Marine Corps and also currently um, working in neuroscience. One of the things that she's going to share is her experience going through different recovery modalities and how they worked and didn't work for her. And I think this is a valuable conversation to have about how there's definitely no one size fits all when it comes to treatment. More so, though, she's actually going to share her experience using psychedelic assisted treatment and how that helped her with her symptoms of trauma. As you may have seen in some of the news, there's some laws changing to enable more research to be done on psychedelics and the ways that they can help with mental health issues, specifically trauma. And we have seen some really cool, promising research coming out about this specific modality. And so she's going to share a little bit about her experience. Hi, Kim. Welcome to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Kelsey. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to share what we discussed previously with our audience and All of the information and the wisdom that you shared with me, I think it's so valuable and brings up some really valuable, important topics for everyone to hear. So thank you for being here and for your willingness to share all of this with us. Absolutely. And you know, on that point, it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I could share. And I have found that it is, it has really helped the healing process to be able to talk more about it instead of being ashamed. And so having people like you out there that can give voice to people like me is really important. So I also want to thank you for making this a possibility. Oh, absolutely. This is definitely the mission of this podcast is to really offer space for everybody's healing here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and share your story with us? 
Sure. Well, I'm originally not from this country, originally from Germany, born and raised. Well, actually, I was born in France, but that's a whole different story. But they were only there for two days, so we won't get into that part of it. But German parents. So that kind of sets the tone for some things. My childhood was not good. My father started raping me when I was about five or six. He was also pretty quick with his fists. I'm not quite sure where he picked it up, but he also had little things that he would do to torture my brother and I. My brother is five years older than I am. So that was a lot to take in at that age, because as you know, we don't have the language, the skills, the experience, nothing, right? It's just, it's a a state of confusion and just trying to get, get through it. To add to that, though, a few years later, probably around nine or 10, my brother started to rape me as well and to beat me. My brother's six, seven and a half, so that was pretty easy for him to do. And that one, Kelsey, was actually a bigger betrayal because my father and I didn't really have a relationship because he was that kind of guy. And weirdly enough, it made processing him easier. But my brother was my brother, you know, and I thought that he was my big brother and I adored him. And so when he turned on me, the betrayal was so much more significant, really. Throw into that mix my mother, who is... She's a narcissist. I think probably a malignant narcissist. I'm a little hesitant to throw out labels like that, but let's just say that she was, she wasn't a nice person and she sort of handed me over to my father and my brother. She knew what was going on and she actually facilitated some of the, some of the things that took place. And, you know, she was filling my head with all the narcissism things. Like I was the one that had to save her. And so there's just a whole lot of confusion going on. So you can imagine how that affected me as a kid. I was really awkward in social situations. I made a lot of mistakes and then that made me even lonelier. I also tried very hard. I told relatives, I even tried telling people at the school, but going back in the day, people didn't talk about it that much and there were no resources. And I was stuck in a little tiny village, you know, up in the mountains someplace. So there wasn't a whole lot. So it, it changed things. It, it changed how I saw the world, changed how I acted in the world. And now, because of my education in neuroscience and some other things, I understand how it changed my brain as well, how it did that rewiring, because the original wound was in there. But the upside of it, because I always try to look for the upside of things, is it gave me some preternatural skills that I don't think I would have gotten. And one of those is that ability to read an energy and to read the room and to read, you know, the micro expressions that my parents have, because you're always, you know, like, uh oh, you know, her eyes are squinting, so I'm in trouble. And you're, you're very aware of everything. And those gifts, though, that ability to sort of uh, navigate that kind of chaos became very helpful later on. The other thing that it did, which, you know, the, the downside is I completely disassociated. The upside is um, it really helped me in my careers going forward. For example, I started playing tennis when I was six and was going to go professional when I was, because you do it earlier in Germany. So I started when I was 13. Because of that single-mindedness, that disassociation, plus all the adrenaline, you know, and my amygdala firing all the time, it made me a really good tennis player because I didn't let anything interfere in my life. I came over here to the United States to play tennis. Dick Braden picked me up and I came to California and I played for several years until I had a knee injury and I didn't know what to do because that's all I'd ever done was to play tennis and, you know, just try and escape things. One of the other tennis players was going into, it was the Air Force, I think. 
I took her down to the station there and the Air Force uh, recruiter said, are you going to go in? And I was like, mm, hell no, <laughs> no, 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 don't want to do that. As I was walking out, the Marine Corps recruiter walked by and he's like, are you here to see me? I said, no. And he's like, good, because you'd never make it. So I went into the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> but there's actually a reason that I tell that story. Because in the Marine Corps, uh, both in basic and in officer's candidate school, it is some of the best brainwashing techniques that you will ever come across, right? Because no sane human being is going to run in front of a machine gun willingly, but they do. And it, it started me really looking at how people manipulate other people. So that started that. The unfortunate part of it is I was really good in the Marine Corps and I really loved it. And I felt like I'd finally found a tribe because we talk about, you know, we'd never leave anybody behind, you know, we're a band of brothers and sisters and you, you become a part of that. And then I was raped by my CO and then I was raped by a staff sergeant as well. And the downside of that and why I am so invested in helping other female veterans is because the military often turns on their own. What happened to me was when I tried to report it, I was then threatened. And they said, you know, the captain was married. So they said they could throw me into Leavenworth for five years for adultery. Like he raped me, but their, their idea was to get me to shut up. That is not uncommon, unfortunately, Kelsey. There are a lot of women in, I belong to a, a rape survivors group. A lot of us have that same story. We're threatened with things. They told me that they had to move me from the barracks to another location because I could get hurt or I've upset a bunch of people. So they had me so frightened so that I wouldn't pursue it. So that really, I mean, that that to me seemed like the safest place that I could go. And then that turned against me. So I was really out of sorts at that point in time. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what to do. And I was just kind of stumbling along. But one of the other gifts that the abuse gave me was the ability to, I could almost know what people were thinking before they did or what their real thoughts were. And then I got into sales and that made me excellent at sales, right? Because I could, I could, I could read the person very, very well. And I started using emotional intelligence before emotional intelligence was even a word. It was about remodeling my language or relanguaging things and understanding how they wanted to hear things and choosing the right words. And so that really boosted my career, but again, disassociated still. So I didn't have those little pesky emotions bothering me. And I went into finance and that's the best place for it. Because if somebody loses their life savings, you know, if you... If you get really upset about that, it makes life harder. And I was just kind of cruising through. And so I worked my way up the corporate ladder and finally became a CEO of a firm. When I became a CEO, I started dealing with more CEOs. And the point of this story is I started noticing a lot of CEOs either had PTSD and didn't know it or were narcissistic and didn't know it because it takes a lot to, I think, to get to that level. And so I started to really look at where I was and what this position afforded me and all the people that I was dealing with. And it was a rape culture, both in the Marine Corps, a little bit in tennis, but mm, the coaches, I mean, there was a lot of that and it's starting to come out now publicly about coaches and players and such. So I, I sat down one day and I was like, oh my God, every profession I've been in has been pretty much a rape culture and nobody could say anything. We would be punished if we did. In tennis, you know, you wouldn't play the next match or it, it, there were all kinds of things to go with it. So 
I went into a bit of a depression because it just seemed like there was no safe place to go. Then one day I ran into a friend that I had met when I first came to America. And she said to me, she's like, one, I'm really happy to see you. And she goes, I've always been worried about you. And I said, why? And she said, you used to like come over and curl up in a ball and start crying and saying that your parents wouldn't stop touching you. I was like, oh my God, did I really? And I had like completely put that out of my mind. Never even thought about it. The moment she said it, there was no alcohol involved, no drugs, no nothing. It was just her and I talking. And when Dory said that to me, everything came crashing in, Kelsey. Uh, I was like, oh, crap. Now I understand why I am a little bit why I am. So I started going into therapy and I did talk therapy and it really opened my eyes to a lot, a lot about me, a lot about what I went through. And then it came a point where I needed to also move a little bit into a different type of therapy. So I started doing CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which I know you know, but that one really helped me. That idea that you guys give us about being able to reframe things because the situation happened, right? I can't change it, but I can change how I looked at it. And I know that sounds simple now, but when you're in it, it's like a gift. So I did the CBT therapy and that helped me reframe a lot of the pain, but I was also an adrenaline junkie because as you know, when you are abused like that and your amygdala starts firing, you know, your sympathetic nervous system, you know, your CP and all of that stuff gets, gets whacked out. So I wanted to do, I moved into somatic therapy and that was, that was excellent as well because then the cellular memories started to erase on one point, it, it helped me kind of calm down. But on the other part, it heightened because then parts of my body, I guess, were like, oh, OK, now we get to talk to you. <laughs> it was like, no, <laughs> let's do this one at a time. But the body didn't want to listen to that. Right. It was just like, OK, here, we're going to flood you with all the memories you can possibly have. And I completely freaked out. But I had a great therapist and we went through it for a while. I went into the Marine Corps BA trials where they were doing drugs, drug therapy. And I got a little teeny tiny taste of it. And I thought this was wonderful. But then they stopped the trials. So I asked my somatic therapist if she knew somebody who worked with people like me utilizing psychedelics. And she did. And she said, well, I have this guy. So I will introduce you to him. And we talked on the phone. And he said, you know, come over and this is what's going to happen. And I made her go with me because <laughs> I thought to myself, huh, I've been raped twice outside of the home, you know, lots of all of that going on. And yet I'm going to go into a strange man's house and take drugs. And I thought that's not a good idea. And um, she's like, I will go with you. And I said, I'll pay you for the whole day, whatever it takes. So we get there and I knock on the door and he opens it up. It's this beautiful, beautiful gay man. <laughs> I, was, I turned around to my therapist and I'm like, you can go now. And she's like, okay. So it was, it was a good place for me because I felt very safe and he was very loving and very kind. And, you know, even when I go on speaking tours for, for my company, Kimchi Wisdom or Life Lab Networks, I always bring up the idea of psychedelics because for me, it was almost 20 years of therapy in two years. It didn't mean that I stopped therapy because therapy is really important. You have to talk those things through, especially the integrating part of it. But it just... It opened up so much inside of me and it kind of helped me come back into my body because I'd also left my body. My body to me was just a tool at that point in time. 
And what the psychedelics did was it helped with the rewiring of some of the things that had gone awry with the original abuse. Because as you know, wherever the trauma lies in the brain, the brain, you know, the neural circuits will go around it. And so this helped kind of open that back up again. And the other part is, is it gave me hope again, because it lifted me out of that lifelong depression. And I, I got to feel what it was like to laugh again, to truly laugh and to feel and to feel okay about being touched. Because as you can imagine, my sexuality was completely screwed up by all of that. I don't know if you want to get into that part of it, but that was, that was a huge, a huge issue for me because if you're not right in your sexuality, if it doesn't feel normal, and to me, that's one of the most basic functions of human beings is sexuality. And mine was not normal in the least. It was highly promiscuous in the beginning, but always had to have alcohol in me or something like that because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the normal touch. So there's a whole compendium of things that happened with that. But again, going back to the plus side of it, at some point I decided to use the brainwashing techniques of religion and and the military. It's not a knock on either. That's just, that's what they do. And they do it exceptionally well. Along with what I learned in, you know, like officers candidate school and recruiting and sales. And I created for myself a program called Life Intelligence because I took all the education I had in neuroscience, all the education I had in business and all the education in emotional intelligence and kind of put it together. And for me, because my brain couldn't accept the emotional aspect of it, I had to figure out what in the brain made people do this. I attacked it that way. And it brought me a nice level of comfort to be able to kind of like, well, you know, it's because my brain is doing this and, you know, my amygdala is on fire and blah, blah, blah. And that I needed that distance from the issues to go with that. So when I created the life intelligence program, I was doing it to teach other people, but it turned out I was really just teaching myself. So I went full force with that and did that for a while and then realized I needed to get back into therapy because, you know, it's... I I had an issue with it because I was raised by parents who, you know, you didn't talk about stuff. I understand now why they didn't want us to talk about stuff, but that was also that generation, right? Because they didn't have the resources that we did. I needed to also stop on that little hamster wheel that I got on because everything was intellectual to me. Like I just intellectualized everything. And I needed the Kelsey's of the world to say, you know, maybe you could look at it this way, or are you sure that that's, and I would be like, oh, you know, you're right. So that's kind of my story of therapy. I just, what I have found is, is there's not one, it's essential, but you kind of got to mix it up. And then I also realized that different things at different stages, like I finished talk therapy because I needed to move into my body, but then once I got through the body part, then I needed to go back to talk therapy. Yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. I know for my experience at the time, it looked like, I think because I, I judged a lot of it of, oh, well, this isn't necessarily, you know, what we call therapy. So it's not engaging in that, but it's something I'm drawn to looking back now. It's like, I did so many different things that kind of wove together intuitively, like what you're speaking to that ended up actually all being an essential part of recovery for me. And I think that's true for many people. And I like how you refer to it as like preternatural skills, especially because that makes me feel a little bit like a vampire. Um, 
I'm like, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm down with that. That's fine. <laughs> but these preternatural skills, and one of those being as detached as we might feel from our body or feeling incredibly dissociated, there is kind of this, like for me, it's like this stumbling forward towards a target that just at the end of it seems, or not even at the end, I'm still in that process. We all are suddenly makes sense, you know, of like, oh, actually I was stumbling towards things that I needed, that there is something within me that knows like, let's aim you towards this direction. So even if you're stumbling, tripping and falling or rolling towards it, like you're, you're headed towards it. And I like how you're talking about being able to pull in so many different things and coming back to that inner knowing of yourself of this is what I need. This is what has worked. And also a lot of willingness to be creative with that. And I don't know about you, but I know on my experience, there were times when people would hear about some of the things that I was doing and they weren't really all that controversial or challenging or like anything like that, but just thought that they weren't like, I shouldn't be doing them. They're not going to work. I really should be doing it in this way. And oftentimes like it should be psychotherapy and formal psychotherapy and only psychotherapy that you, you seek for healing. Cause I went around of incorporating a lot of spirituality and energy type of work as well as somatic experiencing. I always like pause for a moment of silence to appreciate somatic experiencing. Cause it's like <laughs> my body has a I reaction. Hear you. Yes. <laughs> It makes a huge difference. It's a huge difference in a lot of ways. I think it healed so many things that had nothing to do with even my trauma or, you know, obviously probably did because it was woven in, but things that were existing in my body and experienced long before it happened. But yeah, that I think that there's this wisdom to taking your path, however that goes for you and that willingness to show up and engage in all of the different things, despite what other people might say in the sense that, you know, like, for example, psychedelics right now, I think are still considered experimental. There's also a pool of people that kind of stiffen at the idea of using illicit substances, what they deem as illicit substances to assist people just because there's so many judgments that we we have a lot of sociocultural things around how we view illicit substances is different than the pharmacological substances that we do trust to work in these ways. So there's a lot of people who have been helped by psychedelic assisted therapy in tremendous ways. Research is really promising. There's a lot of body of information really building on how to apply these in an effective way that is really helping people tremendously, especially veterans with their trauma. What was that like for you to kind of pursue this? Did you have any experiences like that of people trying to divert your path of your healing? You mean specifically around the psychedelics? Specifically around the psychedelics or any of the other things. I think even sometimes somatic work, people don't quite get. And that's something that they can get a little bit iffy around. Yeah, I don't. I think most of the people that were in my circle didn't even know what somatic was. So they didn't have a judgment. So I didn't have to worry about that. The psychedelics, there's a whole lot to unpack there because you you hit on really important key points. For example, the reason that I wanted my therapist to go with me is I studiously avoided all drugs. I was scared to death of them. And I don't think it really, I mean, it, it, you know, society aside, it was more about, I was so tightly wound, Kelsey, like everything about me. And the idea that I was going to take something that maybe not in control was too frightening. I just, I could 
could not imagine letting go of what I thought I had. <laughs> it was control. I didn't really, but I thought I did. I really was at a point of desperation, which is why I did it. Because I just, there were so many parts of me that were still locked up. I will give myself credit for this. I tried. I, I tried everything. I was determined to get through this. And that one, that one scared me. But when I did it, as I said before, it brought up feelings that I hadn't had since I was a little kid. That simple joy. My poor therapist, especially I think because he was gay, because like when I would finally get into it, I would take off all my clothes and I would go roll in the dirt. You know, <laughs> it was like, because uh-huh. I got to be, and it was so important to yeah. me though. That was, that was pure joy. It had nothing to do with anybody else. It was just me connecting back to nature, which is, which is huge for everybody. I always thought it was just huge for me, but I mean, that's essential to every human being. The one thing that I would say is, as I said, I promote this all the time because I think it's important and I think it should be utilized more. What I don't do, and I still haven't to this day just taken drugs to have fun. That's kind of my goal is like someday I want to do them just to do them. Because right now it's always about, I got to process this and I got to work through that. And this popped up and I'm going through it. So what I want to say is I do encourage people to do it, but I also have to say that you really need to find again, somebody like you or somebody who's trained. My guy was good. He made some really serious errors though, because he wasn't a trained professional. And I certainly don't ever, ever. In fact, I warn people against it. Don't just take it on your own and think you can take yourself through the process. That's a bad, bad, bad idea. I did it for like four years. And so I became, I think, fairly adept at knowing what the process was going to be like. But even with that, there were times when I'm so thankful that I had somebody at my side. So I really want to put that out there. Yes, they're great, but you have to do it with the right person who's trained and you have to do it in the right environment. And please don't ever go just, you know, take drugs and think you're going to work yourself through the process. Yes, it's not you and your buds and J tree. <laughs> That's not going to do exactly. this. Right, right. I, I even had one because my therapist left. One guy was like, well, I'll take them with you. I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think both of us on that journey. And that that kind of cemented to me that you really need to be careful who you pick. One of the, the best things that I got out of it was some semblance of relaxation. For me also, because I always wanted to know what happened. You know, I wanted all the details. I had to have all the details. I thought I did. And this blurry thing about, you know, well, I think that happened or this happened, that would drive me insane. So to have all of this come up, to remember about my brother, because I also blocked my brother. Like I processed my father, because as I told you before, that was the easiest, right? My mother, I mean, there is no mistaking that she's a narcissist. She's never really quite been on this planet. Like she's got one leg here and one leg someplace else. I knew that, but it always felt like there was something else. And I wouldn't have gotten to that, I think, for a very long time about my brother had I not had that. Plus my friend, you know, also saying that about my brother. So that gave me the validation that yes, it was doing it. The other parts, as I said, is I had lost hope. I just expected things to be crappy for the rest of my life, you know, and to kind of go down this path. To be given that hope again was truly important. It's a little bit of a tribe of people. And that is important to me too, because I'm always looking for community. Like one of the things that I struggled with prior to this was my idea of what family was, was pretty, pretty bad, but I knew I wanted a family and I wanted that love and I knew that I needed it. And as a human being that I should have it. And I didn't know where to find it because as I said, I was, you know, so messed up sexually and and not able to just have a relationship. 
to be able to have this community of people who could speak the same language that I did and had gone through the experience and understood was also really important to me. I didn't feel like a freak because prior to that, I thought I was the only freak in the world and I was the only one filled with shame and I was the only one that messed up. And that made me feel even more isolated. And, and then that led to nobody will ever want me because I'm so damaged and you know I'm not worthy of it and all that stuff that just comes in. And with the ecstasy and, and such, it, it brought back that feeling of self-worth, like I'm, I'm okay, you know? Yes, I'm damaged, but so are you probably a little bit. I just don't know it, right? It gave me empathy back and it gave me my compassion back, not just for myself, but for others. It wasn't that I, I didn't really care about other people. I just didn't feel like I could afford to. It was scary because if you care about somebody and they hurt you. So I just avoided it. That was, I think, the best thing was it, it gave me peace. It gave me compassion and started to give me a little bit of trust back in the world. Nice. That's so wonderful. And I, I love how you brought up the control kind of being this a little bit of a central figure in how we approach managing our symptoms on our own and also ultimately what became kind of the pathway to real reconnection with yourself. Because so I was thinking about, especially as you started that, you know, I know for, for me, my experience, and I think for most people with PTSD and trauma is it is this experience of like, not only was the assault and the rape loss of total control, and I was stalked for a little while. So there was a sense of like, no control in my world, my environment, there's something in someone out there that has the power to really control what's going on and how I feel. And then the PTSD symptoms of like, now I don't even have control over what my thoughts are and what my feeling is and what's happening to me. And so this kind of overcompensation with intense tight control coming in. And I know we talked a little bit before about, you know, how that can also lead to this like high achieving people with trauma, but that, that also sometimes can lead to being the barrier to healing because I know for me, that was ultimately always and still sometimes is my fear entering into therapy or healing modalities is having to release control. And especially something like a mind altering substance, even if I know this is supposed to really help just the idea of something else that's going to relinquish control completely, or that's how I understand it. That's obviously not what's happening, but so, so terrifying. And that the wisdom that you're speaking to is this kind of total surrender body and mind, you know, in this moment that then kind of helps us actually move into this new stage. And I think, you know, Peter Levine talks about that. He, he developed somatic experiencing that one of the portals to true surrender and surrender being able to be completely at one with the present moment without any judgment about that present moment. And that one of those portals was through trauma. And I remember that sitting with me so strongly because it definitely felt like there was this transformation that happened with me around just kind of this paradigm shift that I can't go back to the way it was around control. I don't have control. The world is going to do things and people are going to do things. And this world can fundamentally shift in a way that I don't get to decide. And also that there is still space for me to find a way to be in it. And that's kind of what you're speaking to of like this total surrender comes with also like, well, if I 
don't have to be in charge of controlling everything, then I get to be free. And that's the thing that we don't realize when we're so terrified of letting go of control. We think we're just going to like plummet to our death. Like we're clinging onto that cliff face so firmly, but really what's happening is we're actually just continuing to keep ourselves stuck to the cliff instead of like being able to free ourselves. And especially this image of you, like taking off all your clothes and rolling in the dirt. It's just like, not only is that kind of like, it feels like returning to the wild animal that we are, but also very childlike of that kind of joy and pleasure of just like feeling all the sensations on our skin and being free from any kind of restraint or anything and just totally innocent experiencing joy and pleasure of the world exactly as it exists. And that like total abandon and that freedom that's there and how you talked about this just raw, pure joy and peace and hope. And then through all of these things, you know, also being able to reconnect with yourself and therefore with a community that feels like it truly recognizes you. And I think what you're describing is just such a beautiful illustration of that recovery path that when we can safely let go of control, And you talked about like those safe boundaries of like having people that are trustworthy to do that, that the other side of that is not total abandon into the abyss. It's actually freedom and liberation. And that's a wonderful place to be. I agree. When I did have that situation and that feeling, it didn't occur to me. It became very clear that the prison that I had built was exceptionally strong and good. Again, I know to some people would be like, well, duh, Kim. But at the time, I didn't know. It was, oh, my God, I'm the only one that's kept me in that prison. Like the abuse ended when I left home and then it ended when I left the Marine Corps. Right. But it never ended inside of me. It was an ongoing, living, ever evolving thing that was just starting to eat up all of my emotions, all of my feelings, all my faculties, really, because all my energy was focused on keeping that contained and keeping that control. I also had the illusion of, I will scientifically walk my way through this, right? And it was like, even with the drugs, it was, okay, today, you know, we're going to work on this. And and I would tell him, I'm like, this is what we're going to do. And he would just smile at me. And he's like, okay, sure, Kim, like, let's, let's do that. (laughs) I was like, okay. And so I would, you know, then I would take the drug and it would be like, you know, 180 degree turn. It would be something completely different. And it used to make me really angry because I didn't like things not going my way because that scared me. So the other thing that drugs gave me was, again, that ability to let go of outcomes and to realize that my brain was good, but it didn't know anything. It's my body and my soul and all of that. And I was trying to really just focus on the brain. And when I moved out of that, it made once I started taking care of my body and my soul and my emotions, it made the brain so much easier. So I had it all ass backward, right? Like I went in there with like, I'm going to intellectualize my way through this. And it's like, no, like it's just not going to happen that way. And to this day, though, I got to tell you, I still like, okay, this is my intention. And I kind of laugh myself now. And it's like, well, we'll see where it goes. And it never goes where I want it to. I'm a Virgo. I love to intellectualize and control everything if I can, despite having better wisdom at this point, for sure. Well, you know, we're still humans, right? 
Yeah. And this kind of brings us back to that, like high achieving people with trauma topic that I think is very interesting. And I know that you mentioned this also a little bit when you talked about noticing that CEOs either have PTSD or narcissism and your own story about how a lot of the things that you learned and developed, plus also some of those defense mechanisms of like intense intellectualization is leading to a lot of this like high achievement. And this is also something that I experienced too. Like work became something that was ironically a very safe space because it was completely within my control or I, I, I believed it was. Despite that, obviously I'm working with other humans and they're coming in with their experiences and everything. But this sense of like, I get to decide what direction it goes into. I can decide how many hours I work. I can decide what my focus is, all this other stuff, right? And so it, it was really easy to use work as this lovely coping mechanism. And it definitely helped. And I was able to get trained in all these different modalities and go and get different experiences I was really wanting. Although I definitely struggled with, you know, working on teams that, you know, maybe had different plans than I did. This, they might've been really good plans, but they weren't mine. So, so I, and I mean, my, and my tolerance for anything outside of, outside of what I see as right was very, very low. Can you speak a little bit more to some of those observations that you had around like high achieving trauma? It started with, with me, of course, you know how, when you meet somebody and you dislike them immediately, and it's not the brain recategorizing it, right? Because we know that in one 150th of a second, the moment I look at you, my brain goes through every face I've ever seen. And it says, does Kelsey look like somebody who beat the crap out of me in third grade? Or does she look like the person who helped me out in third grade? And so I either kind of like you or don't like you right away. But I also learned that usually when I dislike somebody, I ended up being best friends with them, or I really enjoyed them because they were just shining a light on something that I didn't like about myself. You, the professional, know that. I did not. I had no clue in the beginning. And I started looking around at some of the other CEOs because in the financial industry, we all like hung out together. And I still, I coach CEOs right now. And I think it makes me a better coach having an understanding of this because it's a different type of pressure. And it is actually very isolated when you're in that position because every move is scrutinized, every decision, everything you say, everything. You really have to be on and you have to be on for 80 or 90 hours a week. And then you have the press and then you have, you know, the public and then you have your clients and you have your brokers and then you have compliance issues and all of this. And in order to withstand that, you have to be able to shut down. I liken it a little bit to the medical profession. Like they're very caring people, they wouldn't have gone into it. But they have to be able to shut down that part of it in order to be effective. And I found that that was the same. When I first became a VP, that's when it sort of dawned on me. And I had to shut down some. Like I couldn't talk to all my friends and all the people. And it was encouraged to be that way. But then it becomes also very cutthroat because everybody wants that position. And sometimes upper level CEO, it used to be a very common trait for them to pit people against each other to see who would win because they felt like the strongest one was the one that they would pick. I started looking at how I managed to get there and it was because I was able to cut off my feelings. So then I started looking at the others and I would throw little things out there, you know, like try and talk about something personal and see where they went. You know, some of them would, but I would listen to the words and it was still very impersonal what they were telling me. It was very highly curated stories. We all have our little bag of stories. Like if I met you in a bar, I would tell you this story. 
if I met you in a bar and you were a friend of a friend, then I would tell you a different story. If I went home and talked to my parents after the bar, it would be a completely different story, right? So we have all these little stories and I could tell that they curated them quite well. Because of my my emotional intelligence of things that I started doing with that, I got some recognition for it. So then I got asked to actually do, I don't want to call it speech writing, but for a lot of CEOs, a lot of different financial firms, whenever they have issues, they would contact me and it's like, well, how do I phrase this? You know, what language should I use? So that's how I started to get to know them all pretty well. And I started recognizing that disassociation. After a while, I found the right set of questions to ask them. And I could surface whatever issues they have, like when they are in childhood. And I noticed a lot of them did, especially the females. Or maybe it was especially because they were more willing to talk about it. Let's put it that way, because it was it was more familiar. So I had a lot more of those conversations with other female CEOs or SVPs, you know, and, and somebody in the C-suite. And I got to looking at it and the way that we built corporations, the way that we built the military, we've built everything. Really, it's very competitive and and only rewards people who are narcissistic and or disassociated, right? Because those are the ones that can take the slings and arrows and keep going. I lived in Los Angeles for 20 years. I managed to make one friend that was in the industry and then that led to meeting pretty much everybody. I mean, really well-known directors and actors and actresses. And boy, is that... (laughs) (laughs) that is a hotbed. Let me tell you what. And the thing is, they were a lot more willing to talk about it. And I noticed that those were the two key qualities, that ability to disassociate or whatever narcissism helped you get past those things. And so I likened that back to the corporate and I started looking at the behavior patterns and it was, it was the same thing. It was that ability to shut down yourself and the ability to shut down others without having any kind of embarrassment, shame, or ill feelings about it. And it's pretty rampant. Oh, and what I was going to say, sorry, I'll tag it back, is when I started writing those speeches for CEOs, I also then started writing them for some politicians that were either getting elected or reelected. And same thing, highly narcissistic and or disassociated. And again, it's, it's all that to me. I'm a layman, but they all have that same thing going on. Really bad childhood and or just the narcissism. And that allowed them to take, because it's a brutal, brutal world out there. I mean, Olivia Rodrigo, I keep listening to that song because she's right. She's like, it's brutal out there. It it really is. And if you don't have those skill sets, you're going to get stepped on. And that's interesting because I think what you're speaking to is observing that we have a system set up that not only like encourages, but has built within it the mechanisms to create dissociation and narcissism or reinforce narcissism as well, and also pins our success on it. And so then doing something like getting treatment and recovery and getting reconnected and grounded and no longer dissociating is definitely like in a way, very anti-capitalist because that's just not possible for us to survive in the world that way. And on one hand, like my little anti-capitalistic heart is just like that, that could be nice, but at the same time, like our world is capitalistic as it is. And so it makes it really hard for us to be able to participate in that system as it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I've always said that we are all just really tall five-year-olds and we're still, you know, carrying that same crap from kindergarten with us, right? And we're trying to to make the new school that we're in better than that one. Like kids, if you get rewarded for a behavior, you're going to do it. And if corporate America is set up that the more people you step on, the more allowances they give. I'll give you an example. This one, I was consulting for this company. They're national. They're huge. They had a CEO 
who was pretty disassociated. He brought in a guy as his EVP who was one of the worst narcissists I've ever run into. And the two of them had worked together before and they had destroyed two other companies. But here's the thing. They destroyed those companies. And I knew them before, before I went and consulted with this company. And when I walked in and I saw them, I'm like, these aren't the right people to be running this company. But I was a consultant. But I watched them. And it was like this associated guy used the narcissist guy to do all of his dirty work. But he stayed, you know, above the fray. And I would go to him and I'd say, but, you know, people are leaving. They're upset. They're fired. And he's like, that's cost of business. That was his attitude. And the other guy would go in there and he would like walk into meetings in the middle of a meeting in, in order to intimidate everybody. And he would say really stupid things, but he would get away with it because he actually left that position and became CEO of another company. And now he's yet on to yet another company. So even though they mess up companies, it's that reward system. As long as you can manage up and if you can do the dirty work for those up, you keep getting promoted. And that to me, again, those are the two key qualities. And I know I keep coming back to them and I feel like I should come up with something else, but I can't. But it's that ability to hurt people and not let it affect you or that desire to hurt people and use it as a tool to get ahead. I mean, look at politics and business. They go back and forth. You go into politics for a while just so that you can come back and then get, you know, government money and grants and, you know, grease palms and all of that type of stuff. It's the only reason those two exchange each other. It's, it's a matter of power. You know, and then there's a languaging of it too. But one of the things that I, I really finally got sick of and banned from my company was I never wanted to hear the phrase boys will be boys ever again. I mean, that one just wrinkles me because we're giving them a pass to do whatever it is they feel like they're doing because they're just boys, right? And you know, boys will be boys. Girls don't get to be girls, but boys get to be boys. And so it's a little bit of that old boy network. And they, you know, they circle the wagons when anything happens. They've got it pretty damn good. And so they're not going to let other people in. It'll sound like male bashing to males, but the thing is, is they are just as locked into a bad situation as we are because they, for them to have the balls or to be strong enough or to even attempt to be empathetic, to lead a company with empathy is going to create so much scorn and derision and slings and arrows that are going to be thrown their way. I'm not putting all the blame on them. I mean, it's it's the way our society is set up right now. They're trapped in their stuff and we're trapped in our stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we could go off on a whole little mini series about the psychology and inner workings of big corporation and how it reflects intergenerational transmission of trauma. There's the thesis. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I should have written that one. <laughs> More experience with it. So, you know, kind of wrapping things up today, what are some words that you have to share with survivors and victims listening to this today? Well, the one thing that I always tell my coaching clients, whether they're trauma clients or, you know, executive clients, is there's no magic pill for any of this. I really wish I could say that. I certainly never thought it was going to be a lifelong process. And I'm kind of glad I didn't know it was a lifelong process because I would have probably checked out a long time ago. But it is. I'm by nature a very curious person. I mean, that's probably one of my strongest traits, that and loyalty. But it's 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 really kind of a cool path when you think about it, because you go to depths that other people don't go to. You experience things. The acceptance part of it is hard. I struggled with that forever. Like I didn't want to accept it. And then finally, it was like, it's like tilting at windmills, right? Well, who am I fighting? I'm just fighting me, I'm not fighting anybody else. 
And then I started looking at, well, look at all the things that I learned. And I surfaced those gifts and I was able to use those gifts. And for better or for worse, I achieved what I wanted to achieve. So there are a lot of gifts in there. I would prefer to use my powers for good like I am now. But the thing is, is at least it gave me, you know, those powers. The other thing too is hearkening back to what I said about feeling unworthy and and shameful. Thankfully, I had a therapist who pointed out to me and he said, you know what? He said, if it's not that you're not worthy of having, you know, a, a husband or a lover or whatever. He's like, you're probably more worthy than anybody else because you really value family because you know what it's like not to have family. And that was a huge revelation for me. And so I started to incorporate that and really think about it. We appreciate things, the littlest things that other people just pass by, don't even recognize. So we've been given that gift of observation, I think, and appreciation. And to me, that was the biggest gift that I got out of it, realizing that that life is It might scare some people, but life is really tenuous. You don't know what's going to happen in the next minute. You can try and control it and it'll still do whatever it feels like doing. So to be able to to learn to appreciate those moments that are good, I'm just going to say it. I think we do have a greater appreciation of most things in life once we've gone through PTSD. Sure, there's all the triggers and all the things you have to do every day. You know, it still takes me... It used to take me five hours to get ready in the morning. I had to get my head straight. Now it only takes about an hour and a half, two hours, which... It's, you know, it's still a chunk of time, but I'm learning to manage it and I'm learning me. And it's a gift to find out who I really am at every stage in my life. So I think at this point, I'm looking at it more as as a beautiful journey of really finding out the important things in life. It's not about being a professional tennis player. It's not about, you know, being a CEO. It's not about any of that stuff. It's you and I connecting. And me, my producer, Jamie, talking about things that he and I would never have talked about before, right? Because it's not there. And my my love for people that that are there to support. And when you find that support and realize that we're a tribe and that we have each other's back and that we're always there for each other and that we understand the joy of being able to sit down and talk to people without having to go through everything that you ever went through and explain, well, the reason I feel this way or the reason I drink or the reason I do this It's just like it's complete acceptance. And to have that is a gift that I don't think most people have. So that is my word of encouragement is stay with the process. It may seem daunting and it may seem long, but you're going to get so many wonderful presents and surprises along the way and support if you reach out for it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kim. Sure. Thank you so much for today. All righty. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.